Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. If you would be open your Bibles to Matthew, the 16th chapter. Matthew, the 16th chapter. In just a few minutes, we'll look through a text there in Matthew, the 16th chapter, and study about what the Lord built. Debbie Walden called and said that she's hoping that Donovan might be able to go home tomorrow. Let's continue to remember him in our prayers. Uh, he is looking good. He's looking better. And uh, had a good visit with him the other day. And what a blessing he is uh, to our lives. What encouragement he and that family are to us. And let's make sure that we keep them in our prayers. And we do hope that he is able to go home tomorrow. Also, keep in mind... Uh, Thursday night is a wonderful opportunity for everyone to get involved. Of course, all of our young people uh, will probably be here. But even those of you that are not in that age group, it's still uh, what you can give and how you can help with the canned drinks and, and with desserts. And if you have Thursday evening available and want to come and help serve, Phil says that he'll need some adults to help in that way. So if you can be here at about 6.30 to just be ready to do whatever's needed at the moment, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, We're thankful for our young people, and we're thankful for the opportunities God gives them and gives us to serve each other, and this is a wonderful way in which we can uh, serve them and young people all throughout our area. Appreciate so much uh, Andrew preaching last Sunday and the tremendous job that he did and the talented man that he is. Appreciate the Summer Faith Series that he's put together and the blessing that that is also in our lives. Be sure and be Uh, supportive of that and and tell others about the opportunities that are taking place on Wednesday night here. Also, uh, FYI, this coming Sunday, a week from today, uh, I'll begin a gospel meeting in Morristown, uh, Church of Christ. And those of you that have been going on the mission trips for several years, you remember the tremendous campaign that we had in Morristown. And so I plan on telling them uh, greetings from you guys, uh, from us as the Mount Juliet congregation, but if you have any special uh, hellos or uh, catching up that you want me to do with anyone, be sure and jot that down and, and let me know, and I'll be sure and try to pass that on. And uh, we love and appreciate the Christians there and the tremendous week that we shared together. And that's a part of the Christian faith, is just sharing in life together on this earth with other Christians and looking forward to spending eternity uh, with each other and with God. When we think about the church... What is the church? When we look at Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 18, Jesus said, I'll build my church. When we hear some people speak about the church, they speak of it as if it's the building. Now, maybe some of those people that speak of it as the building know that it's not the building, but nevertheless, it is spoken of very oftentimes at the building. I'm going to stop by the church and pick up something. Well, I I was going by the church today and I noticed so-and-so was there. Now surely we all understand that even though we may speak like that, which that may not even be the wisest way to speak, but even if we do, surely we know that the Lord did not die to establish a building. You know, I have a hard time of referring to this building as as the church because that's so foreign to what the Lord died to establish. It's wonderful that we have a building and a facility like this to meet, but surely we know that to refer to that this as the church is just not accurate at all. Someone else would say, well, the church is all of the denominations, and when you bring all of those denominations together, that's the universal church. Now, friends, the Lord did not die to establish denominationalism. The Lord wanted unity. It's man that created denominationalism, and so we know that that, too, is not the right definition of the church. It's not all of the churches across the world put together. 
Also, when we talk to some individuals, some individuals talk about the church as if it's an option, as if it's something that's not just real important. In other words, just a few weeks ago in our campaign at Dayton, I was studying with a woman, and because of some past experiences in her life, this is the way she described her relationship with God. She said, I serve God on my own way now, just me and God. She said, I've tried to connect to churches from time to time, but that always brings pain and hardship into my life. Now, it's a shame that that is her idea of a church, is that it brings hardship into life. But what I tried to help her see is that if Christ is the head of the body and the body is the church, you can't separate the two. In other words, Barna Research even reveals that right now there are more people in America that consider themselves more spiritual than what they've been in the past, but yet they say that they're less involved in a church. You see what the mindset that is, that is gradually or perhaps sweeping America right now is a mindset that says, I want to be faithful to God, but the church is really just an option. I'm not really finding a lot of my identity and a lot of my commitment in a church. I just want to find God. Friends, we can't separate the head, Christ, from His body, the church. In other words, however important Jesus is, His body is just as important. Now, another thing that individuals will do is they'll speak of the church and say, the church is an assembly. In other words, they'll say it like this, where'd you go today? Well, I went to church and when I got out of church, I went and ate lunch. Was that really what the Lord died to establish was just an assembly? Now, it is true that the church should not forsake the assembly of themselves together in Hebrews 10, but that's not the church. In other words, I love the fact that we assemble together and we're commanded to do that. And what a blessing it is for us to be together at times like this. But the assembly itself is not the church. In other words, us being here in this assembly, does that make us the church? But when the amen is said, we're no longer the church? Think about this. If you slept eight hours a night, and I know some of you say I never get that much sleep, but just go along with this, okay? If you slept eight hours a night, you'd be awake 112 hours a week. Now, if you gather with the assembly for two hours to worship and two hours for Bible class a week, that's four hours out of 112 waking hours. That would mean that if our perception of the church is is just the time that we spend together in assembly and then there's no longer a church, do you realize that what we're saying is really the church is only between 3 and 4% of our life? Can you imagine the church that the Lord died to establish being that insignificant? What's the church to you? Oh, it's just a little fraction of my life. The church really isn't that much. Well, you know... Barna did a study on that too. As a matter of fact, it was so powerful that he even wrote a book that talks a lot about it. I want to give you a statement that he made as a result of America not seeing themselves as the church. He says, our research indicates that churchgoers are much more likely to see themselves as Americans, consumers, professionals, parents, and unique individuals rather than zealous disciples of Jesus Christ. Until that image is reoriented, churches will not have the capacity to change their world. I'd have to agree with him on that. If my mindset is the church is just something I attend, that's why you hear people say sometimes, you can't say that in the church. They're either talking about the assembly or they're talking about the building. 
We're the church when the amen is said. The church goes back to your house. The church lives in your house if you're faithful to God. The church goes into your workplace. The church goes out into your communities. But you see, we sometimes fail to realize that, and so we would much rather identify ourselves as by our career, or by our family, our physical family, or by our citizenship as Americans. The point is, then the church has little effect upon the world. What could we do in Mount Juliet if every member of this congregation realized that they were the church every moment of every day? That's the way they saw themselves. Before they spoke, they were reminded that they're speaking on behalf of the Lord's church because they're the church. Before they chose their actions and their behavior, they reminded themselves, I'm representing the church of Christ that meets at Mount Juliet because that's who we are. What is it that the Lord died to establish? It wasn't just an assembly. It wasn't just a building. It wasn't a a multiplicity of denominations. Let's read in Matthew the 16th chapter. And as we look at Matthew the 16th chapter, we're going to begin reading in verse 13. And we'll pause to give just some background to this text as we work our way to the 18th verse. And Matthew the 16th chapter, look what he says in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Now, it's interesting the location here because Caesarea Philippi was a northern territory of the, of the northernmost area of the Jewish territory. It was an area that was filled with pagan altars and temples. And it even had a tremendous, significant Roman emperor place of worship. Herod the Great built for Caesar Augustus, the emperor, a white marble temple there so that people could gather for for Roman emperor worship. And so you can imagine, they're at this place where no doubt they could probably look around and they could see these temples, they could see these idols, they could see these things that were to worship idols or to worship men. And Jesus, He chooses this backdrop to say, I want to teach you about a church that I'm going to establish. It's not going to belong to idols and it's not going to belong to men. It's going to be my church. What a beautiful backdrop. What a challenge. That the church has always stood apart and stood different because the church belongs to God and not to men. But then notice the question that he asked. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Why do you think he asked that question? Do you think Jesus needed to gather information? And keep in mind, this was the man that could read individuals' hearts. Remember in Luke, the seventh chapter, when, when Simon the Pharisee was just thinking among himself, if you knew what kind of woman that was, washing your feet, you wouldn't let her touch you. And he just answered his heart. Friends, think about it. He could have read the apostles' heart and know what their answer would be before he actually, actually gave an answer. The truth is, he already knew what individuals were saying about him. So the question again, why did Jesus ask this question? Why did he ask these closest disciples that would be the apostles, the leaders of the early church, why did he ask them, Who are men saying that I am? Friends, if they didn't understand who Jesus Christ was and is, they were not prepared to be the leaders of the church. 
You see, we oftentimes speak about Jesus in His public ministry for those three years, and rightfully so. But I think what we sometimes fail to realize is that we could almost just as much refer to those three years as Jesus' private ministry with the select leaders that He was growing to prepare them for the day of Pentecost in Acts the second chapter. You see the point? He is asking them this question because He's helping the future leaders of the church grow. He's helping them get the knowledge that they need, the understanding that they need, so that when Peter stands up 50 days after the crucified Lord and he begins in Acts the second chapter preaching as he he is giving the keys that's been given in him to the people so that the kingdom of heaven could be unlocked. Now let's ask this question. What are we doing to help grow the leaders of the church tomorrow? Jesus invested so much of His time into growing leaders. What about this challenge? What if not only here at Mount Juliet, but what about all across the world, every congregation of the Lord's church, the present leaders said, we're going to grow heads of homes stronger in the next generation than what we are today. What if the goal of every congregation was, we're going to help young men be better husbands and better fathers than what we were. We're going to help elders, are going to help grow a stronger generation of elders for that next generation. Deacons are going to help grow replacements for themselves that are going to be stronger deacons than even they themselves are today. Bible class teachers and preachers are going to help grow replacements for them that are actually stronger than they themselves. Friends, do you realize how we would set the next generation to conquer the world with much greater ability and zeal than what we today have? Let me ask you something. Why don't we have that as a goal? When Jesus spent so much of His time working to grow leaders, why don't we spend more time Working to grow leaders. What a tremendous investment of time that would be. So we ask them that question. Let's look at verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, or others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, that was some beautiful answers that they gave. They gave answers of great prophets. Now, the Jews were very much known by their schools from whence they came. Those that were teachers or rabbis or preachers, if you will. It's interesting here that they never could peg Jesus to one of those. Of course, He didn't attend them. But isn't it interesting that they were astonished by His teachings, but they couldn't say, Hey, I recognize Him. He must have come through a school of Gamaliel. He must have graduated from Hillel's school. They couldn't do that. But what did they say? He reminds us of prophets. What did the prophets do? The prophets spoke for God. Now, isn't that a compliment? Wouldn't it be neat if people that knew us could describe us as people that speak God's message? What a tremendous compliment. But as you know, that alone is not enough. In other words, that wasn't the right answer, even though those were great prophets. That is not who Jesus Christ was and who He is. And so let's read on now, as he said in 15, this question. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Now, it probably doesn't stand out, the significance of this phrase to us like it would to them. Because we hear Jesus referred to so oftentimes as Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ. But keep in mind, Jesus was His name on this earth. He was Jesus of Nazareth. That's the man in flesh and blood. But now here's the question. That man in flesh and blood, was He really the Anointed One? Was He really the Messiah? And so when Peter makes this explanation of who Jesus is, it was astounding. It was powerful. He's saying He is the one that the Hebrews have been waiting upon. He is the one that's going to fulfill all Hebrew expectations. He is the one that's going to bring about the new era and the new day. He is the Anointed One. He is the Messiah. What a tremendous description. And not only that, He wasn't one that was from men. You remember their backdrop? They have idols and idols' altars around them. They have the worship of the Roman emperor in the background. And He says, He's the Son of the living God. He is God. He's the Son of God. He's the anointed one. He's the one that the psalmist wrote and said that He would come. He's the one that the prophets spoke and said He would come. He's the one that John the Baptist said that He's coming. He truly is the anointed one. Now with that confession, we read verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So he says, upon this rock. What is the rock? Some have tried to say that Peter, Petra means stone, that he's saying upon Peter he'll build the rock. That is not using the text correctly. One word in the original text has five letters, the other has six. One is masculine, one is not. It's unfair to the text to try to say that. So what is he saying? He's looking at Peter and he's saying, upon this rock, what is the rock that he's going to build the church? It's that great confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's upon that confession, that rock, upon that reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, that he's going to build the church. Now, how important is it that we build our church there? I would like for us to look at a couple of texts that we do not have slides for. If you will, go with me to Matthew, the seventh chapter. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, I'd like to refer to the end of the chapter to a passage that we sing a lot of time with our children. We sing about the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now, let's think about it. As Jesus was that wise man that was building the church upon the rock, we have to decide where we're going to build that rock also. And if you'll notice in verse 25, the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat upon that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But in 26 and 27, we see that some individuals built their house upon the sand. And those same things happened and the result was a great fall. Now we need to ask the question, are we today building our lives upon the rock? Now keep in mind, we are the church. If we're a child of God, we are the church. So are we building our lives upon the rock? Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. In 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, really the entire chapter could fall under the topic that we're discussing tonight. And that is where we're building our house. And as we look at this, I'd like for you to consider with me as, as we back up into verse 3 and 4. 
Notice the setting here. There's a problem going on about where they're building their lives, where they're building their church, if you will. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, picking up the middle of the sentence in verse 3, says, For you are still carnal. In other words, they're not righteous, they're not spiritual, uh, spiritually pure here, they're carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behave like mere men? Let's pause right there for just a minute. What do you think would cause strife and envy and divisions among people? He nails it, and it needs to be something that's clear in our mind. Whenever we take our eyes off the Lord and we stop building on the Lord and we start thinking about people, that's what creates the division. Look as we read verse 4. For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? And then he says in 5 and 6, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom ye believe, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Skip down to 10 and 11. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, what's Paul doing? If you're doing intense study down through here, something becomes very clear. Paul is talking about where they're building their life. And the reason they have division and the reason they have strife is some of them have left the rock and they've gone over here and they've started building on what we today call preacheritis. They, I'm building my life. I love Apollos. He is eloquent. Have you ever seen a guy know the Scriptures like him? That's the way I'm going to heaven. I'm following him. Somebody, oh no, you can't beat the Apostle Paul. Look at that man. Look at all that he's given up. I tell you, I'm with Paul all the way. And Paul writes and says, your problem is you're not with the Lord. And both of you, both of you have serious problems. Why? Because now you've taken the one body of Christ and you've splintered it. You've created divisions in it. And Paul's writing to say, don't you realize where Paul and Apollos are? Don't you realize later he would talk about Cephas, Peter. Don't you realize that we're all ministers of the Lord and some of us plant and some of us water, but it's all God that gives the increase. We build our life on the rock, Jesus. Don't start following men. Now friends, I realize we are responsible for our behavior. We are responsible if we become a stumbling block. I'm not about to say this as if to say that's not true. We are responsible. But do you realize that we have no hope of making it to heaven if we build our life through men? I want to ask you something. Could some man leave the Lord and it would discourage you so much that you would leave the Lord? If so, I suggest to you that you may have built your life on the sand. Because we need to build our life on the rock so that no matter what happens around us, the rain can fall and the floods can rise and the winds can blow and we're going to stay on that rock. It doesn't matter who moves into town or who moves out of town. It doesn't matter who dies. It doesn't matter who loses their faith. The question that I must ask myself tonight, am I a part of what the Lord built? What did He build? He built a church and the foundation is Him. Am I a part of that foundation or is my life built upon that foundation? And if not, I've set myself up for failure. It is a shame when Bible class teachers, Christian friends, elders, deacons, preachers, 
It's a shame when anyone encourages someone to serve God through them. The church is not about a glorified individual, no matter who it might be. All of the glory in the church belongs to Jesus. He's the foundation. And I want to challenge you tonight. Use our brothers and sisters as encouragers. Be an encouragement to each other. But don't ever lose sight of the foundation. Let's close by looking at what the Lord built in Ephesians. Let's look in Ephesians the fifth chapter. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, I'd like for you to think about the descriptive terms here. Let's read verse 26 and 27. That He might sanctify and cleanse her. He's talking about Jesus sanctifying and cleansing the church with the washing of the water by the Word. That He might present her to Himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, if you look at these terms here, without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, what products come to your mind? Some of you ladies have already guessed this, haven't you? It's those cosmetics that work against aging. I'd like something that covers up these wrinkles. Do you have something that can cover these blemishes up? What's the Lord saying here? The Lord is describing a church that's never going to grow old. Friends, we are to be a part of a church that is always available to the next generation. Why do we love our youth? We love our youth and we serve our youth and we go out of the way to grow our youth because we believe that the church should never grow old. Does that mean those that have age and wisdom are not important? They are absolutely important. But what happens when a church ceases to reach out to the next generation? I heard a quote one time. I don't think I ever forget it. How true it is. A church that marries one generation shall be a widow in the next generation. Friends, let's make sure that when we think about the Lord saying, upon this rock I'll build my church, what did the Lord build? He built a church that the foundation was Jesus Christ. And He built a church that He says, I don't want it to ever go out of existence. In other words, I want that church to be available for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Let's make sure that we're doing everything we can do to make the church available to another generation. There are several other things that I hope in a future date we can study, picking up right here to looking at aspects of the church. But tonight... Let's extend the invitation with the very thought in mind that the church is made up of people that have built their life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
If you've never been baptized into Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be wonderful to be baptized into Christ? And Acts 2 teaches us that point that we're added to the church. Now we're building our life on that foundation. Maybe you have been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way, you might have left that foundation. Let's let this be the night that we come back to that foundation. Let's make sure that we're building exactly what God wants. And what a blessing that is to us as individuals. And what a blessing it is to each other to be in a family of believers. If we can help you.